0: Amen. Well, if you will turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 18. We're going to resume our study of 1 Samuel this Lord's Day. If you were with us last week, we saw how the fruit of David's life and Jonathan's life and Saul's life is becoming more and more apparent in their actions. We talked about how The fruit reveals the root that ultimately we we can see what's at the root of a person's heart by looking at this fruit that comes out in their life. And as we looked at King Saul, we saw that his life was and is characterized by jealousy and bitterness and anger. These are not fruits of the spirit. They're fruits of a spirit, the spirit of this world. They're fruits of the flesh and those who walk according to it. And we saw a great contrast between that and David and Jonathan and their responses to God's sovereign plan unfolding and their responses to this worldliness and and walking by the flesh of Saul as we saw David and Jonathan characterized by love and kindness and faithfulness. And as we continue in our passage today, we're going to continue to see how this fruit works itself out, particularly in Saul's life and in David's life. And so we're now at a point where... Uh, David has slain Goliath, and as he has returned from battle, the people are singing his praises over and beyond Saul's praises, and Saul is filled with this jealousy and this bitterness. He's attempted to kill David a couple of times already. And then in the midst of this now, you have Saul, who had hurled spears at David, coming to him and offering his daughter's hand in marriage to him. This goes back to a pledge he had made to whoever had killed Goliath or would kill Goliath this was part of what they would receive as a reward and so at first glance it seems that now Saul's is going to honor his word but there's certainly more to it than that and we'll look into these things as we walk through this passage today and so out of reverence for God's word if you're able to if you would stand as I read God's word for us remembering this is the holy inspired word of God God has gone to great length to preserve it for us throughout the history of the church, and we have it now intact for us today, that we might learn from it and grow from it and be brought to repentance and faith. This is what the Holy Word of God tells us. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab; I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not... My hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Maholathite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. And now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, "'Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, "'since I am a poor man and have no reputation?' And the servants of Saul told him, "'Thus and so did David speak.' Then Saul said, "'Thus you shall say to David, "'The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. "'Then he may be avenged of the king's enemies.' Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to be, uh, pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. You would pray with me. Father, as we we read that that final line of that passage, of of the name of David being esteemed, we are reminded of a name even greater than David's, of one who would descend from the line of David. We we are reminded of the name above all names, uh, of the name of our Lord Jesus, and how all of these things we read in your word, they, they ultimately point us to Christ. So help us to see that in your word today. Help us to see what you call us to in your word. Help us to repent of sin and trust in you and to set our eyes on glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you familiar with Greek mythology, you may know the Greek legend about a young athlete who was a very proud young man. He went to Olympus to complete, or to compete, feeling that, that he would be victorious over anyone who would come against him. He was a strong young man. He had trained and he was ready. The day came for his race. He went with great pride into this race only to fall short at the finish line to another and finish in second place. He was upset, he was bitter, and he was a bit envious and jealous as he looked to the victor. And what made matters worse is that the man who won the race was actually from the same hometown as his. And when this young man and when the victor returned to the hometown, the town was so proud of the one that won the race, they decided they would build an enormous statue in the center of the town. Their, their pride in their athlete. And so they began to come together and to build this statue. And every day they would work on it. That young man who finished second, his bitterness, his envy, his anger would grow. Until the statue was finally complete. And he decided one day that he must tear it down, except how could he do that? Everyone loved this athlete who won. This this was a a symbol of pride in their community. And so he devised a plan that each evening while the town slept, he would go out and he would slowly chisel away at the foundation in hopes that then a storm, a, a wind might come through one day and the statue would come toppling down and shatter into hundreds of pieces. And so each night he would go out, he would chisel a bit, chisel a bit, chisel a bit. And as he did that, his anger grew, his bitterness, his envy, until one evening he chiseled just a bit too much. And at that moment, the statue fell, and it fell on him and crushed him. This Greek legend, of course, has a point about what envy and bitterness and anger do to us, how they will eat us up, and ultimately they will destroy us. And we don't need a Greek legend to see that point in the text. and We see it clearly in the life of King Saul. This is one who is being eaten up with bitterness, with envy, with anger. And as the days goes on, like the chiseling of that foundation, it is eating away at him and eating away at him until it will ultimately lead to his demise. And yet as it eats away and as he schemes... How he will bring down this giant monument of David. We see that God's hand is with David. We are reminded that if God is for us, who can be against us? And it seems with every plan of Saul, we find failure. And with every plan of David, we find success. But as these things continue, we see a picture of a man eaten up with envy we see a picture of Saul who was haunted by those words that the women sang as they came out from the towns, as the Israelites were returning from their battle, as they sang praises about Saul, but even greater ones about David. And as Saul's mind is then filled, perhaps, with the warning, the promise that he was given by Samuel, that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and has given it this day to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I think chances are at this point in the story that Saul has a pretty good idea of who that is. And so he is going to seek to do everything he can to ensure that kingdom does not go to David. And as he does, we see this fruit even more so come out of his heart. And as we do, we're able to discern again today as we did last week, what is indeed the fruit of the Spirit of God at work in a person's life, and what is the fruit of the flesh. And in hopes that we might look at those things and then look for our own life and see, do we have genuine faith today? Genuine trust in God, and if not, that God in His mercy and grace might lead us to repentance and faith today. So... We'll begin our study with that hope in sight by looking there at the first point in your outline. The reminder, point one, that selfish ambition, dishonesty, and deception are not fruits of the Spirit. And yet we see all of these characteristics in Saul's actions and his dealings with David. Now again, at first glance, as we come to verse 17, it seems that Saul is a man of his word. Saul comes to David or sends word to David saying, I want to give you the hand of my eldest daughter, Mirab. This goes back to the pledge that Saul had made that David had heard about when he came to bring provisions to the front lines for his brothers and when Goliath the giant from Gath had come out and was taunting the people of Israel and the Israelite army and their fear that they wouldn't go out against him, but they were sharing with one another and with David, this young shepherd, that the king had made a pledge. That whoever would take on the giant and whoever would defeat the giant, well, that man would be rewarded. He would be given great riches. His family would be freed of taxes. And he would get his daughter's hand in marriage. And so now we come where it seems that this is time for Saul to pay up and and to keep his end of the bargain. And at first glance, it seems like that's what he's doing. But as we look closer to the text, we find that that's not exactly what Saul is doing here. Saul is scheming. Saul is deceiving. Saul is trying to bring down the statue. And then notice what we see. Saul adds to the original pledge. He said, you can have my daughter, but you have to be my warrior. You have to fight my battles. And he says the Lord's battles, but he's really thinking of himself. You can Go back and think about what the people had cried out for when they wanted a king. We want a king who will go out and will fight for us. And yet, what do we see now of Saul? He won't go out and fight battles. We see him cowering as his son Jonathan goes to fight the battles. We see him cowering as David goes out to fight the battles. And now we see him cowering and trying to add to this pledge in a way that now David will just keep going out and fighting these battles. And yet we see that it's not so much victory that he wants as defeat. He wants David to to be defeated. He wants David to be killed in battle. Why? Because he wants the statue to fall. He doesn't want praise for another. He wants it for himself. Here we see the selfish ambition of Saul. Now, he has to be crafty. And he has to come up with a scheme because at this point, David is a hero to the people. Now, David is humble. David is saying in the text here, well, well who am I? I don't have a reputation. And yet at this point, David has quite a reputation, a very good reputation among the people. Now, they're singing songs about him. They're praising his name. Every time he goes out to battle, his name becomes more renowned. And Saul knows he can't just keep hurling spears at him. <laughs> Maybe he's taken a poll among the people and found that his popularity ratings going down a bit when he starts throwing spears at the hero, David. And so he comes up with another idea. He, he finds that it will be better if David would die at the hand of the Philistines. Then perhaps he, he could fake grief. He could mourn perhaps with the people. Oh, David's gone. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's exactly what he wants to happen. We see he offers this hand in marriage in hopes that David will then go into these battles. And notice David's response. He's hesitant to marry the king's daughter. Well, we see great humility here from David. Now, there's a lot we don't know in the text. I can't help but think that David probably is also thinking about what this in-law relationship is going to look like. I mean, we've already had a situation where there David is uh, playing an instrument for the king and he's noticing the king kind of gripping that spear and looking at him and getting angry at him and then hurling that spear at him. (laughs) I don't know what your interactions were like with your future father-in-laws, but I'd bet if something like that took place, there wouldn't have been a wedding. (laughs) But yet it seems that David isn't worried. He isn't scared. He's not overcome by fear. No, those are attributes of Saul and his walking in the flesh. David here at this point, the Lord is with him. He's trusting in the Lord, yet he's still hesitant to marry the king's daughter. And it seems his hesitancy comes because of his humility. Who am I, he says, to marry the daughter of the king? And yet he never refuses. He never says he won't do it. And in fact, the way we read the text, it would seem here that, that there's a time set, there's a moment that comes when this was the time for David to marry Mirab, the daughter of the king. And yet, when that day comes, there's another groom, a different one. Saul gives the hand of his daughter to another. Now again, you consider that in our modern context, the invitations go out, the guests arrive, they are there to watch the ceremony, and then as the pastor comes through the door, the groomsmen and the groom, you begin to notice, wait, that's, that's not who we thought it was going to be. This would be a rather unusual, a very humiliating situation in our current context. It was greatly humiliating, I believe, for David in the context he was in. It was a sign to all the people that of what Saul thought of David. And yet notice that we continue to see David's trust, David's faithfulness, David's humility, as we continue to see Saul's schemes. And so first marriage doesn't happen, but then Saul comes with another offer to David. This time it's for his daughter, Michal. And again, David is willing to consider this, but Saul seems to have some indication that perhaps David won't go through with it, and you can imagine why. Between the spear throwing and the groom switching, he probably doesn't trust Saul very much at this point, And yet we just see his humility. Now again, Saul is scheming here. He, he thinks that Mikael will be a snare to David. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know exactly how he thinks that she'll be a snare. we may. Look at other situations in the Scripture and how uh, this could be a bad situation and that may bring our attention to when godly men would marry women who were involved in pagan worship, idol worship, worshiping other gods and how that would be a snare to their beliefs and their walk with God. Perhaps that's the situation here. Perhaps he's just thinking about the deal he had attempted to make with his daughter Mirab and putting David into battle and how the snare would be that he would be in battle and that he might die at the hand of of the Philistines. Whatever the case. Saul wants to make sure this one happens. So he, he sends his servants in privately. And he says you really got to talk this up. And something interesting in the text here. that This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible. Where we have specifically it mentioned. A woman by name and the love she had for a man. That she loved David. Well, certainly there's other women that loved David men in the Scripture, wives who love their husbands, but there's something specific, something that stands out to us in the text here, and I believe this would have been something that stood out to the servants and stood out to David. Mikael, she, she really loves you, David. She's going to say yes, David. <laughs> you don't have to worry this time, David. Saul's not going to switch things up, because she loves you. And so, David, it seems to be a bit more willing this time, and yet there's a problem. The problem is the bride price. You may be more familiar with the term dowry. In ancient cultures, and even in some parts of the world today, there's a dowry involved in a wedding, and the dowry... Is the money, the the resources, the wealth that a family sets aside with their daughter. And when their daughter's hand is given in marriage to a man, she takes the dowry with her. We don't practice this as the father of three daughters. I'm very glad we don't practice this. But there's another part to this exchange, and it's the bride price. And so in these ancient cultures, as the family of the bride-to-be would gather this wealth and these resources to give to the future son-in-law, the future son-in-law also had to come to the table with some goods. He had to pay a bride price. And the bride price correlated to the dowry. And so if he was to marry a woman from a wealthy family who was bringing a large dowry, it was expected that he would bring a large bride price. You can see the problem that's coming here. This is the daughter of the king. This is the princess of Israel. The dowry would be enormous. And David notes that he's a poor man, that he has nothing to pay. Now, side note, this tells us a bit about the dishonesty of Saul. Because what did Saul promise to the man who would slay Goliath? Not only his daughter's hand in marriage, not only for his family to be free of taxes, but great riches. That means that at this point, David should have been a wealthy man. But Saul wasn't an honest one. And so he never paid up what he owed David. And so we see his his dishonesty and we see his schemes coming through this situation. And so he schemes some more and he tells his servants, okay, okay. There's a bride price issue. Now again, he could have just paid David like he was supposed to, but perhaps at that point he realizes, well, that might be a bit for show, and so he comes up with a different idea. One that seems a bit strange to us. He wants him to go and kill 100 Philistines, and he wants him to bring back something that proves that he killed 100 Philistines. (laughs) We read the text. I need not read it again. You know what I'm talking about. It seems strange, it seems unusual, and yet in the context here, it actually wasn't that strange and unusual. Ancient armies would often bring back body parts as symbols of victory. They would often do this as a measure and a means and a way to say, here's how many we killed. We've got this many hands, this many heads, this many. In fact, we see ancient depictions of this, we see them in the Scripture. What did David do after he killed Goliath? He severed his head. He brought that head to King Saul. We found through archaeology ruins like those of Ramses III who apparently commissioned scenes to be painted of his servants counting the severed hands of enemies he had conquered as well as other body parts. And in this context in this day it seems very strange and barbaric to us but this was normal in a sense. Saul wants to know that David actually killed 100 Philistines. Saul doesn't trust David. Now, again, it should be David who doesn't trust Saul here, but we see Saul's heart working its way out. He is a deceiver, and he expects everyone else to deceive him. He's overwhelmed by suspicion. So he wants the proof. But we notice here the proof really has nothing to do with the Philistines being conquered. It has nothing to do with his name being avenged, even though that's what he says. And it has everything to do with his desire to see David killed. You see, he knows that David has killed the giant Goliath, but there was only one. And perhaps in his mind he's thinking, well, if I tell him to kill a hundred Philistines, surely he will fall at the hands of a hundred Philistines. We see here, Saul's dishonesty, his deception, and his selfish ambition. And we're reminded, friends, that these are fruits of the flesh, not fruits of the Spirit. We're reminded to look to our own lives, and if we see any selfish ambition, any deceit, any dishonesty, we are to repent of these things. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing... From selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Proverbs 16 verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife. And a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 17 verse 20. A man of crooked heart does not discover good. And one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. Ephesians 5 verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now notice how Paul there refers to deception. And notice how we look at deception today. We tend to think of deception lightly. We we tend to honor and reward those who we see to be shrewd in their dealings. And yet, what does the Scripture say here? It says, if you are a deceiver, if you're twisting things, manipulating them for your own benefit, if you're deceiving, then you're a son of disobedience. That's not a good title to have, by the way. That's saying that your heart is corrupt. And what does it say? That the wrath of God is coming against you. And against me If this is what we operate according to, are you a person of honesty and truth? Or are you one who deceives? As we recognize any of these things in our lives, selfish ambition, and deception, dishonesty will the call for us is to repent of them and to trust in Christ, to recognize these are not fruits of the Spirit, and to search out those things which are, which brings us to the next point there. Number two, patience, humility, and self-control are fruits of the Spirit. And we certainly see these things in David's life, at least at this point in his life. We see Saul's actions and the fruit from them. Notice what we see from David. The very first thing, patience. I looked up the definition of patience. Like many definitions, there are many. This is the very first one it lists, though. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Now listen to that. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay. How do you respond to delay? How do you respond when things don't happen in the time you want them to happen in? How does your heart do when you're sitting out at this stoplight in front of the church for 17 and a half minutes? (laughs) How patient are you then? Or when the repair person doesn't come when they were supposed to, or when the person doesn't come at the appointed time, or when things don't work out the way you thought they would, when you thought they would, how do you respond? Patience is the capacity to accept Or tolerate delay, trouble, suffering? How do you respond, friend, to suffering in your life? I've said this before. I've never been one to believe I have the gift of prophecy, and even if I did, I would not try to be prophetic about what's coming this year. (laughs) after the year we had last year, and who knows what will come from the next year, the one after that. But I can tell you this, quite certainly, somebody in this room is going to suffer. I'll never forget one Sunday, staying in this pulpit and saying that there's a high likelihood that someone in this room will get cancer and will die before the year ends. And then we had one sitting there in that service who within months got cancer and died. It's not prophetic. That's just looking at the world around us and realizing, friends, we are surrounded by suffering and sickness. That these things come upon us again. We are not immune from this because we trust in Jesus, but we are promised a day when we trust in Jesus when all these things will be gone. But in this day, It's not proportional. And at times, it's almost like dominoes as one falls and another and another and another, and it overwhelms us and it burdens us. And when it comes disproportionately, how do we respond? Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Now, side note, this is where I'd veer away from Webster's Dictionary because I don't know that any of us have the capacity. But in Christ, He He has the capacity. And we're called to trust in Him even more so as we suffer, as we experience trouble or even delay. We're called to trust in Him and hope in Him because He, Christ, has the capacity to take on all of our burdens and all of everyone's burdens and multiply them times a million, and He can take it all on. And yet we so pridefully carry it around as if, "Oh, I can handle this. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll make it through this." No, no, friend. I'll tell you one of the great bumper sticker lies of the world. God will never give you more than you can handle. Wrong! False! It's a lie. God will put on you so much more than you could ever handle because you're not intended to handle it. We take our burdens to Christ. And He is the one who carries the load. What does Jesus say? Come to Me! And He will carry the burden. If you've been going through life thinking, oh, I can do this. Well, God will never give me much. No, He will overwhelm you that you might trust in Him. And one of the fruits of that is this patience that He develops. And notice the patience we see in David's life. David here was destined to be king. David here had been anointed to be king. David would look to the throne of Saul and say, listen, you're sitting in my seat. And yet he patiently waits much longer than the red light in front of our church. (laughs) He waits, and he waits, and he waits. Of course, the Lord was with him, and he gave him this capacity, this patience. Also, we see humility. I mean, notice David's humility, how evident it is, and how he responds to Saul and his servants. Saul sends this word to David about his daughter, and he said, "Who, Who am I? I'm not a man of reputation. Now at this point, he kind of was a man of reputation. They knew his name. I don't know about you. Nobody's written songs about me, but they're all singing songs about David. And yet here, this isn't a false humility. This isn't someone standing in the spotlight saying, oh, you know, it's not about me, it's about you. Well, no, it's about you. You're in the spotlight. No, this is David, I think, in true humility, recognizes That that he's not worthy. That that all glory belongs to God and God alone. That the songs they were singing shouldn't be about David. They should be about God. David's not walking off the battlefield saying, look what I did. He's saying, look what God did. He's humble. Does it seem to you a little thing, he says, to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man, I have no reputation. I'm a nobody. It's a reminder here of how those in the Scripture that we read about who who seek to build themselves up, God humbles. And those who are humble, God exalts. I mean, look at the, the last verse here in the 18th chapter. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David, I'm not worthy. Who am I? I'm a nobody. David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Now listen, there's a name that's more highly esteemed than David's. That's what we're being pointed to here. It's the name of Jesus that's above every name in heaven and on earth. And we are called to trust in that name. And as we trust in that name, then He lifts us up out of our sin and our humility. And He raises us up. Why? Because Jesus humbled Himself to the point of death. Death on a cross. Why? Because you and I deserved it. And He took it in our place. That we might receive what we don't deserve, his righteousness. It's a reminder to us of the great exchange, the beauty of the gospel. And then, in addition to this humility, this patience, we see self control. I mean, notice the comparison here. Saul is given to fits of anger and rage. What does David do? He exhibits self control. Be the king, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Here's David playing along hey, what's Saul doing with that spear? Comes right at him. I don't know how much time passed. I don't know if it's a different day. I don't know if Saul had two spears at the time. But apparently, he tries it again. Now David at this point knows. God has promised. He's been anointed king. He's a warrior. He took a stone and took down Goliath. What's it going to take to take down somebody smaller? David could have picked up one of the spears, thrown it right back at him. And been done with it. But he exercises self-control. This was not the plan of God. God had not called him. In fact, think about what's going to happen in the future. David's going to have the opportunity to take Saul out. And he doesn't. Why? Because it's not the plan of God. And even in Saul's fallen, disobedient, unrepented state, David knows That at one point, God had anointed him king, and he will not raise his hand against God's anointed. Self-control. So how do we apply these things? Well, friends, we look in our own lives. And we look to see if this patience, this humility, this self-control are evident. We're reminded in David's life that they're evident because the Lord's with him. It's an indication of if the Lord is with us. Do we have this kind of fruit in our lives? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what we've been called to. Is that what we're known for? When the lost world surveys the Baptist churches today, do they sit back and say, you know, I don't believe what those folks over at Bloomfield Baptist believe, but i got to say this, I've never seen a more humble, gentle, patient group of people. They bear with one another in love and the unity they have. Does the world look to the church today and recognize these things about us? Or does the world look to the church today and say, what division? (laughs) What backstabbing? We are to walk in the manner worthy to which we've been called. Incidentally, the reason the world doesn't look to the church like that is because oftentimes the church is full of people who haven't really trusted in Jesus. But if we have this should be the fruit, and if this is not, that's an indication. We haven't genuinely trusted in Christ. Colossians 3: Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. This doesn't say that every person in the church is someone you're going to agree with or be like-minded with. My goodness, do we have different opinions in this room? Wear a mask, that's a mark of the beast. Don't wear a mask, you hate everybody. UK, bah U of L NC State, whoa. Politics, I don't want to get stuff thrown at me. I want to go there right now. Colossians 3 does not say agree with one another in every single thing in the world. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, another, this is shocking. Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. We are not to be a grudge-bearing group of people. We are to be a forgiving group of people. Now understand, forgiveness in this context does not mean ignoring, brushing over, pretending it didn't happen. No, we forgive in the context of the gospel. God does not look to sinful man and say, eh, I'll give you a do-over. He doesn't look to us and say, well, you know, you messed up. Everybody messes up. He looks to us and he says, all have sinned and you fall short of my glory. And the wages of your sin is death. You deserve my wrath. My goodness, we looked at one passage already. Just for deception, we we deserve the wrath of God. And what does he do in his grace and his goodness? What is true forgiveness? He pays the debt through his son on the cross. And through that lens of the gospel, He offers forgiveness. And that's the only way, friend, we can truly forgive one another. And if we've been forgiven, then our heart should be to forgive. Well, pastor, you don't understand what they did. No, but I understand what I've done and what God's forgiven me of. And I'm not asking you to come up here and testify because you don't even know, and I don't even know the depth of the sin of our own heart. Jesus, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. One of the ways we repay, one of the ways we celebrate the gospel is through our forgiveness of one another. As the Lord has forgiven us, so also we must forgive. Second Peter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is what we are to be known by. And especially in these days, when so many of us say to one another, well, how much worse can it get? Well, surely the end is near. 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. We should be the calmest ones in the room while it's all falling apart around us because our hope and our trust isn't in this world, it's in the world to come. Genuine believers are called to exercise and exhibit this patience, this humility, this self-control and to ask, are these things evident in our life? Which brings us to that final point. The same question we asked last week, the same question we ask and should ask each Sunday we come to the Lord's Word. Are we being led by the flesh then or led by the Spirit? In summary here, we see Saul clearly was being led by the flesh. David brings him not just 100 trophies of war, but 200. And Saul steps back and sees this. And Saul, in his unrepentant, sinful, wicked state, is able to see the Lord is with him. And how does he respond to this? Through repentance? Through a desire to be in a right relationship with God? No. No. Verse 29, Saul's response Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, that means, by the way, Saul was also God's enemy continually as he came against God's anointed, as he didn't trust in the plan and in the hand of God. Yet we see David does. Victory after victory, what do we see? The Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, and his name is exalted among the people. What about you? What about me? If you're a fan of sports, you, you've probably witnessed, as I have, when someone wins the race, when they score the winning touchdown, when they hit the winning shot. So often, you know, we, we're not surprised when they point to heaven, when they thank God. It's not hard to do when you finish first. And they want to build a statue in the city of you. But what about when you don't finish first? What about when everything you worked for and prayed for and hoped for comes crumbling down? Do you praise God then? Do you trust in him then? Is your life marked at those points by patience, by trust, by humility, and by self-control? Do you boast even in the lowest of lows, in the depth of God's love for you, regardless of what trials, tragedies, and temptations might come? This is the mark of genuine faith and genuine repentance. And this is what we are called to in light of God's word. If you would stand together and pray with me as we come to this time of invitation. Father, I thank you for the hope that the gospel offers us. That, that we have not gathered today for a motivational seminar. Or a list of steps that we need to take to have a better life or a better marriage or better finances. We gather today under the authority of your word and I pray that we would respond to that authority through repentance and faith. That that if we find that we are dishonest, being led by selfish ambition, jealousy, bitterness, anger, strife divisions lord that we would repent of these things that that we would seek the the genuine fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness gentleness humility self-control and lord we thank you that these aren't things we will ourselves into that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to accomplish these are things that come as we trust in christ as we walk with christ so help us now as we come to this point of invitation to respond to your word through worship, through prayer, through repentance, and as you lead. Through coming before this assembly today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, family, and guests, we offer now an opportunity of response. The primary response to God's word is for us now to, to sing and to rejoice as we sing about the depth of the Father's love for us. Maybe you need to just stop where you are as those around you sing and just pray and repent. And go before the Lord. It may be you need someone to counsel with you, to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. Pastor David will be here as well. We can talk to you more about the gospel. It may be God's leading you to come and publicly profess Christ as Lord today to follow through in obedience to baptism, to start the process of joining this church fellowship. Whatever it might be, we invite you to respond. We invite you to come. We invite you to sing as we come to this time of response.